close your eyes. What's the first image that comes to mind when you think of the environment? Leafy trees, verdant forests, open pastures that stretch as far as the eye can see. Maybe your favorite beach to visit, your favorite mountain to climb, your favorite scenic hike. Now think about environmentalism. Probably something along the lines of beach cleanups, seals with plastic rings around their necks, planting trees. Oftentimes, people forget that the environment isn't just another synonym for nature. Many people think environmentalism is only about trees and mountains, excluding humans and our surroundings. But really, the environment is all of those things. City blocks crammed with buildings, our places of work or school, or even the dumpster that we use every Tuesday, they're really all part of our environment. Environmentalism is an incredibly broad topic and thus susceptible to misconceptions or incomplete interpretations. In the late 20th century, during a time many considered to be its birth, environmentalism rose from a predominantly white narrative. Dubbed white environmentalism, the movement's first points of focus were the preservation of wilderness through the creation of national parks like Yellowstone. The lauded figureheads of the environmental movement like John Muir, Gifford Pinchot, Henry David Thoreau, and Aldo Leopold embodied a very specific narrow image of environmentalism that represented the interests of white, privileged men. Muir once wrote, Of all the mountain ranges I've climbed, I like the Sierra Nevada the best, and recommended simply going into nature as a way to escape the crowded cities. But did the average working mother really have that choice available to them? Did Muir really believe that the working poor too shared his priorities of being able to go camping with their children or teaching them how to fish in the national parks rather than the coal dust that filled their lungs or the contaminated city waterways that were giving their children leukemia and cancer? Like most movements throughout history, environmentalism is by no means immune to bias from larger interests. In many ways, environmental justice arose as a sister movement to reconcile with these social disparities. Above all, environmental justice is all about equality. It's about the fair distribution of environmental goods and bads, as well as environmental voice and decision-making power. For example, in the United States, Black Americans breathe more pollution than they produce, while white Americans produce more pollution than they breathe. And toxic waste sites are more likely to be placed in neighborhoods that are predominantly Black. In environmental justice, this is also a practice called disparate siting. In this episode, we'll examine the infamous case study of the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL, through the lens of environmental justice. First, we'll discuss the storyline of the DAPL controversy, including its grassroots origins and spread as a youth-led social media movement, resulting in its presence on the national stage. We'll analyze both its infringements of environmental justice and its justifications from multiple angles. Finally, we'll examine what all of this means to us and society and what we can do going forward. Hi, I'm Nick Shu. And I'm Jen Yi. And this is The Modern Environmentalist from State of the Pot at Cornell University. In June of 2014, Energy Transfer Partners, or ETP, announced a $4 billion project to construct an oil pipeline. 
It was a massive project that was expected to pass through four states, including North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Illinois. This pipeline, named the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL, would be a major distribution hub for the Midwest. The pipeline passes through the Lake Oahe Reservoir, posing a serious contamination threat to vital water resources for the Standing Rock Reservation of the Great Sioux Nation. The Dakota Access Pipeline also infringes upon culturally significant lands of Standing Rock and would severely disrupt, if not destroy, burial sites that have historical significance to them. By constructing on these lands without consent, Dakota Access LLC and ETP would be breaching the sovereignty of the indigenous tribes. There were several protest efforts to stop ETP's actions. In April of 2016, youths from Standing Rock and nearby Native American communities began a grassroots campaign called Respect Our Water and began to raise awareness of this issue. But their activist efforts were met with fierce resistance. During these incidents, security workers would unleash attack dogs on peaceful protesters on a construction site. The police would show up with riot gear and military equipment to an encampment that wasn't even protesting. In the later protests, the police even unleashed pepper spray, tear gas, rubber bullets, and water cannons in below freezing weather, leading to over 300 injuries. The majority of these protesters ended up suffering from hypothermia. Also during this period, the Standing Rock found themselves in a policy deadlock with various state agencies such as the Iowa Utilities Board. The pipeline project inched along slowly but surely, despite the efforts of the Standing Rock and their allies. During this period, ETP repeatedly made apparent concessions that didn't really address the problem and completely ignored even government requests to halt construction. Here are some examples. Back in 2014, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had issued a sovereign lands construction permit that included lands sacred to the Sioux community. However, these permits were temporarily revoked when the Dakota Access Pipeline construction was planned. When Iowa farmers filed lawsuits against the temporary revoke, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers handed over all of the permits except for one and moved on with the pipeline construction. The Army Corps of Engineers acknowledged the farmer's lawsuit in order to turn away the public eye, but didn't accept the parts of it that interfered with their construction plans. And in September of 2016, the U.S. Department of Justice received 33,000 petitions for a full environmental review of the pipeline project, with a focus on the Lake Oahe Reservoir. Although they asked ETP for a voluntary pause, ETP completely rejected the request and continued with their construction. Taking the issue to court didn't help the Standing Rock tribe's case either. In 2016, the Standing Rock sued the Army Corps of Engineers twice on July 27th and September 10th. However, District of Columbia Judge James Boesberg sided with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, citing the Standing Rock's alleged refusal to cooperate. Due to limited success from the legal protest efforts, Young activists decided to step up. They led several demonstrations, including a 15,000-strong sit-in and a 2,000-mile run to Washington, D.C. But their most successful effort was their social media movement called Hashtag no This made news headlines nationwide. For several months, 
online and offline activism efforts alike put significant pressure on lawmakers and demanded that their voices be heard. On July 7th of 2020, the federal judge finally sided with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe to temporarily shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline until further environmental effects were investigated. Some point out the potential benefits from completing the DAPL project. Primarily, the pipeline offers several avenues to boost the U.S. economy. Reducing oil transportation by $5 to $10 per barrel of oil, DAPL offers a cheaper alternative to other transportation methods, such as rail or trucks. DAPL would also reduce its national deficit with a 250% increase in oil production in North Dakota, according to the American Foreign Policy Council. And the construction of DAPL would decrease the unemployment rate by creating thousands of jobs. The construction process would require 8,000 to 12,000 new workers. This would essentially boost their economy by more than $129 million, according to Bradley Blakeman, a professor at Georgetown. Others have also argued that the pipeline is a more environmental-friendly and safer alternative to traditional methods of oil transportation. For example, the Manhattan Institute has claimed that the pipelines are less at risk than road and rail by decreasing spillage incidents and personal injuries. However, when examined further, the Army Corps of Engineers and Energy Transfer Partners case for the pipeline's construction begins to fall apart. Despite the agency's guarantees of the project's safety and Judge Boasberg's statement that they had done their due diligence in consulting with the tribe about the pipeline's risks, the reality of the corporate consultation process as well as a review of the judge's opinion show otherwise. According to Chip Colwell, professor of anthropology at the University of Colorado, quote, the Army Corps of Engineers and Energy Transfer Partners did not allow sufficient time, resources, or attention to evaluating the environmental or cultural risks. They relied on assessment processes, modes of communication, and external consultants that, taken together, are known to lack sensitivity and accountability to indigenous people's concerns, rights, and capacities to participate on genuinely equal footing with powerful private and government parties." Unquote. Indigenous concerns of building on culturally significant sites, for example, were not a priority in the eyes of the agencies. Also, the ACE and ETP only looked at the pipeline from an economic perspective. When corporations or government agencies take on projects or create products, they generally accept that there will be some amount of loss of life or some other negative metric that could be prevented, but choose to accept it to a realistic degree. It's why we drive around in cars rather than tanks, even though we could theoretically prevent way more deaths from accidents. In the same way, everybody knows that these pipelines will inevitably leak or cause some environmental harm. It isn't really a matter of if, but when. According to the U.S. Pipeline Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, pipeline accidents spill an average of 76,000 gallons per year. That's 200 barrels every day, more than half of which is oil, the rest being other fuels like natural gas or gasoline. The U.S. Department of Transportation also acknowledges that an average of 31,000 barrels per year remain even after cleanup of leaks. And that doesn't even account for the massive costs, disruption, and often permanent damage to communities and wildlife caused by the whole cleanup process. 
And so, in these situations, companies usually have teams of economists and analysts calculating the acceptable level of risk. But this process is completely one-sided and completely ignores non-economic factors such as cultural considerations. Robin Kimmerer, founding director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, says that, quote, Protectors know that the land is sacred, a living, breathing entity for whom we must care, as she cares for us. And so it is possible to love land and water so fiercely you will live in a tent in a North Dakota winter to protect them. And indeed, they often say that water is life. How can an economist put a price tag on cultural sites that have belonged to indigenous peoples for time immemorial? They don't have a way to do it, and they don't care about it, and they don't. It simply goes unaccounted for. Legally, the pipeline violates the sovereignty rights of the Sioux. The Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 ensured that the lands of the Standing Rock Sioux would be, quote, set apart for absolute and undisturbed use and occupation. In other words, the pipeline also can't really be built, though the United States doesn't have the best track record of upholding treaties with indigenous peoples. Furthermore, the landmark National Environmental Policy Act, commonly known as NEPA, mandates that an environmental impact statement, a report including possible negative environmental impacts of projects, be prepared for projects such as the DAPL. It also requires less impactful alternatives to be researched and for a public hearing to be held. The environmental impact statement is required to, quote, be prepared early enough so that it can serve practically as an important contribution to the decision-making process and will not be used to rationalize or justify decisions already made. The Dakota Access Pipeline is and has been operational since June 1st, 2017. Energy transfer partners have said that they will need until 2022 to complete the report. Environmental justice is also about power, and, well, justice. From an environmental justice perspective, the Dakota Access Pipeline isn't justified because the affected individuals had little to no say in the decision-making process. A set of legally more influential bodies came in and dictated what was to be done with the native land, violating the basic concept of consent. ETP's use of the land's resources and space while forcing others to bear the costs of their actions is fundamentally unjust. So where does that leave us? The story of DAPL is not a new one. It embodies a long history of oppression and subjugation, hundreds of years of broken treaties, violence, and cultural erasure fostered by power imbalances and feelings of racial superiority. We can think globally about how it connects to this broader trend of settler colonialism and about the exploitation and violence that seems to emerge from it every time without fail. Besides the DAPL controversy, 2020 highlighted many existing social inequalities in our world. With the Black Lives Matter movement, people of color suffered greatly from systemic discrimination. COVID-19 underscored healthcare inequities and the Australian wildfires epitomized climate injustice. When hearing about these issues, they can feel so grand and complex, making us feel overwhelmed and hopeless. Some might even feel guilty for not being able to solve these problems, or for privileged individuals that don't ever experience social injustices. These issues might feel distant, leaving them to feel disconnected and apathetic. So what can we do moving forward? Dr. May Elise Cannon, author of the Social Justice Handbook, claims that there are three crucial elements to advocating for social justice, awareness, empathy, and reflection. 
The first issue towards advocacy is awareness. In order to be compassionate towards social justice issues, you have to be at least somewhat knowledgeable about them. In this busy, fast-paced world, it can be difficult to keep up with current events or tempting to only learn about issues that we care about or just to move on entirely with our lives. As a result, it can be easy for people to either become apathetic or jump to conclusions without sufficient knowledge about certain issues. We must have awareness, open our eyes to what is happening, staying informed of both what is happening in the community in question and the historical and cultural context, listen to others more, particularly people who have first-hand experiences or accounts, read more about unfamiliar issues rather than letting it remain as that thing that Sarah mentioned, pause for a moment to tune into how others are suffering. Even if we cannot fix anything ourselves, we can at the very least acknowledge suffering and injustice. The second tool for advocacy is empathy. We must also be empathetic to those who are suffering. In a sense, 2020 showcased a stunning lack of empathy in this world. The COVID-19 pandemic showed again how underrepresented communities suffer disproportionately more than others. Law Enforcement Act Black Lives Matter protests displayed appalling violence to say nothing about the systems of oppression that they reinforced. And of course, we can circle back to the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, an issue that stands as a small part of the greater systemic suppression of Indigenous voices by a government that does not care. It's understandable that different people will want to engage to varying degrees on social issues, but even if you're not going to participate in a protest with homemade signs, we should at the very least keep ourselves informed, acknowledge that these injustices exist, and maybe stop and think the next time you use your sink for clean water. And finally, we must reflect and recognize. We should realize where we've contributed to injustice so that we can begin to take responsibility for our actions going forward. Maybe some of the oil that we've used was transported through Dakota Access. In the same way, it's crucial to challenge our preconceived notions and look for assumptions that we might make without even realizing. We may be tempted to say that unethical consumption under capitalism is inevitable, but what we're implicitly saying here is that our needs take precedence over the needs of others. So inform yourself on how to be a better ally by listening to marginalized communities always seeking for consent, and knowing when to step out of the spotlight. One can't help but wonder, will any of this really combat injustice? In the face of such systems of inequality, approaching or even addressing these issues might feel impossible. But the truth is, change can start with an individual who invokes compassion in those around them. That might start a butterfly effect that blooms into a movement that has a profound impact on society. We saw it with movements throughout history that stemmed from grassroots efforts such as the fight for civil rights, and we're seeing it today from the brave communities of Standing Rock. As Desmond and Emmerbeer wrote in their book Racial Domination, Racial Progress, even if creating change within ourselves may seem like a drop in the ocean, it's the first step to creating change in our inner circles, our communities, our institutions, our nation. At the end of the day, it's our duty as a global citizen to be an ally because inaction is complicity. Towards the end of the piece, they wrote, quote, You cannot but help change things. By virtue of existing, we change things. We affect people in our classes, dormitories, jobs, families, social clubs. Even if we cannot fully realize exactly how, it is not a matter of if we will change things, but how we will, for the better or for the worse, end quote. We have the power to make these changes through what we say or do or create.
Special thanks to Yu Noon, Nicole, and the State of the Pod community, Dr. Pendergrast and Dr. Haskins at Cornell University, and the Milstein program for making this possible.